If you know that your parents haven't managed their money well, then yes, there's a good chance that they might be reluctant to talk with you because they're embarrassed. And that's understandable. I mean, who wants to admit that they haven't handled their money so well, that they don't have a lot of set inside, set aside in savings, that they don't have any sort of plan to pay for long-term care if they ever need it. That's something that's very difficult for a parent to admit to a child because, you know, it's like a role reversal. That was Cameron Huddleston, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 189. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. January is Money Month, which means that all three episodes this month dig into the topic of money from a different and honest angle. Today, we're covering how to talk to our aging parents about their own finances, a super important and often emotionally fraught topic. But before we get to that, I want to quickly thank the 400 plus people in our Patreon community, whose contributions of $1 or more per episode are literally what make this entire show possible. It's pretty rare to have a podcast that's 100% listener funded like this one with no ads or sponsors. And I'm so proud of the powerful little community that we've built around the shared goal of having more honest conversations. That's the mission. There's so much that we can do together with this podcast in 2020. So many topics that I'd love for us to dig into, like family struggles, body image, chronic and invisible illness, pleasure, the pursuit of big goals, spirituality and ritual and magic, boundaries, sex, dating, friendship, social media, self-care, so much. But I need your help. If you love this show, if it makes you laugh, think, and feel less alone, will you join us over in our Patreon community? There are different funding tiers that you can choose from, either $1, $2, or $4 per episode, which is just $3, $6, or $12 per month. This financial support is what allows me to keep making three new episodes per month, and it pays everyone involved in creating the show. That includes me, as well as my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of our guests. And higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. There are lots of fun bonuses that you get in the community as well, exclusive content, first access to event tickets, and more. So you can learn more about all of that and join us over at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. I'll see you there. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Cameron Huddleston. Cameron is the author of Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk, How to Have Essential Conversations with Your Parents About Their Finances. She's also an award-winning journalist with more than 18 years of experience writing about personal finance. Her work has appeared in Kiplinger's Personal Finance, Chicago Tribune, Fortune, MSN, Yahoo, USA Today, and many more print and online publications. In this episode, Cameron gives us practical, helpful strategies for talking to our parents about their finances, health directives, and long-term care plans. She covers the common fears around starting these conversations, tips for making it less awkward to do so, and what to do if your parents don't want to share this kind of information with you. She also tells us the specific types of information that we need to gather from our parents to assist in their financial care and planning, all from a place of compassion and the personal experience of having gone through this very thing herself. I found Cameron's stories and her book to be super empowering, and I'm making a commitment right here, right now, to have these conversations with my own parents in 2020 for sure. 
I hope this episode is just as helpful for you. So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. All right, we are a good to go. Cameron, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me one thing that you are feeling excited about for 2020. Is there anything you're particularly looking forward to that sounds really fun for you? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Something that sounds really fun for me. Well, my husband and I have been talking about our travel plans for this year. We have a goal to get our kids to all 50 states before they graduate from high school. And we are cutting it really close with our oldest daughter, who's a sophomore, and <laughs> not sure if we can quite make it. So we've been talking about which states we're going to visit this summer and how we're going to make it work. And so just just that planning process is fun. And once we kind of narrow down which states we're going to visit, then actually digging in and figuring out where we're going to go. I love that because I obviously we like to travel and explore new place, places and that whole process of you know, getting online and researching a place before you go, because I'm that type of person. I mean, I've got, I have to have a plan. I don't just go and, and wander around because I have three kids. You have to have a plan when you travel with kids. I mean, down to where you're going to eat lunch and dinner, everything. So, but it's fun. I mean, it, it, it's a little bit stressful, that planning part, but it is fun. And so since we've been talking about it, I'm getting kind of excited about the idea of where we might be going this summer with our family. We're leaning toward the West Coast right now. We've been to California, but we're thinking, you know, Washington and then maybe heading up into Canada just a little bit, coming down into Montana, Glacier National Park, and then Idaho. But like I said, we we still have several states we need to cover, so our plans could change. But this is what we're thinking about right now. I love that. Well, I'm in Oregon. Highly recommend the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> okay, so I might, I might go there in April for my kids' spring break. There you go. So, well, feel free to yeah. email me Oregon-related questions. <laughs> I haven't been here that long, <laughs> um, maybe about five years. But um, I am also quite a travel planner or like an everything planner. Like give me an excuse to make a spreadsheet and I'm very interested in whatever that is. But I have this like – I've had this fantasy for a long time of like set a certain budget for myself, like pack some kind of small carry on, like show up at the airport and buy like whatever flight is that like is within that budget and go somewhere random without a plan. I've never done it, but I have like this dream version of like just going on this really spontaneous trip. <laughs> I think it sounds cool and I think you should do it. <laughs> How many states do you have left on your um, challenge or goal? So both of my daughters have been to more than half of the states. Um, my oldest is a uh, she's a sophomore, and then I have an eighth grader, and then my son is eight years old. So he has some catching up to do, but he's he's close to half of the states. I couldn't tell you at the top of my head how many we have to go, but I know we've done. I don't know. The girls might have about fifteen or so more. So. But yeah, we've got to, we've got to work quickly. So it might be a driving trip in our future too to knock out a bunch of those midwestern states we haven't been to. That sounds fun. I am really always a fan of like sort of bucket listy type challenges like that, right? Like all 50 states or all national parks or like I can I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but I always love the kind of aspect of having like a set number of things to do and being able to like check the stuff off the list as you go. Yeah, and hopefully we'll do it. But, you know, I'm, I'm willing to accept that we might not be able to see all 50 before my oldest graduates from high school. But, you know, there's still the summers, 
you know, after, you know, you know, the end of her college year. So yeah, I mean, time. for, I mean, my sort of thought process as someone who like loves goal setting and, you know, going after big things that it's, it is about the end result, but not really. I'm interested in like who I have to become along the way or what happens, you know, like if you set the goal and you wind up doing, I don't know, three quarters of the States, it's probably more traveling than you would have done if you didn't have the goal and that's worth it. So yeah. Yes, I agree 100%. Yes. I mean, we, we set the goals, but if we don't reach them, it's okay as long as we've made progress toward them. And like you said, you know, we've learned something along the way. I think that's important. Yeah. So we are going to be talking a lot about money and personal finance and things under that category today as part of our money month, which I'm super excited. But to kind of kick that off, uh, I would love to ask if you have a personal finance goal of your own for 2020. What is important in your life when it comes to money right now? My goal this year is to be more intentional with my money. And I know that sounds vague, but what I mean by that is that I want to be more careful about aligning my spending with my values. And as you can probably already guess, I value and my family values travel. So I think a lot of times we end up spending money on things that at the end of the day don't really matter that much to us. And we need to first figure out well, what does matter. And, you know, we, my family, me, my husband and I, we know what matters to us. I just need to get better about ensuring that what I'm spending my money on aligns with those values so that I'm not wasting it on things that aren't that important to me or my family. That's my goal this year. Yeah, I love that. So you mentioned that travel is something that is important that you do want to spend on intentionally. So I'm interested to hear, you know, off the top of your head, what you think might be cut or kind of what's the trade-off, right? Like if we're going to put money towards that, what does money come away from? What have you realized isn't that important to you? There's certainly things that we've already cut out. Like, for example, we don't have cable TV. We have some of the services that you use, the subscription-based services, and they certainly cost less than what our cable bill already cost or did cost us. That has saved us money along the way, a lot of money, really, but we also realized we didn't watch much TV, so we didn't need to have cable TV. Um, I don't foresee that we're going to have to make any dramatic cuts. I think it's avoiding those impulse buys. You know, when you, whenever I go shopping in the grocery, I have a list. And so I'm pretty good at walking out of the grocery store without a lot of extra things in my cart and spending pretty much what I expect to spend. It's usually around the same amount every trip. But, you know, maybe it's the kids in the car when I pick them up after school and they say, oh, mom, can we have a tree? Please, please, please. You know, can we go get some ice cream or whatever? Saying no to more of those requests and letting the kids know, you know, hey, look, we don't need to go and get ice cream. We have ice cream at home. We bought it at the grocery store, remember? And if we don't spend money on that, then yay, we have more money the next time we go on a trip, you know, to eat ice cream someplace cool, as opposed to (laughs) here where we live. That's the type of spending that I want to cut out. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel very similarly about that. And really just paying more attention to like, did this $20 that I spent on this thing, like bring me $20 of happiness, right? <laughs> like it's not exactly. like, always easy to look at it like that transactionally, but sort of, right? I've become, I, I wound up traveling a lot in 2019 and like for work and other reasons and realized how much money I was spending, what like extra money I was spending when I was tired, right? Or like run down. And so kind of taking a step back and being like, okay, if I'm more well rested, if I take better care of myself, then I'm less likely to be like, uh, can't think about anything, like must buy food out, must do, you know, essentially like comfort spending that actually doesn't make me that happy. And again, like you said, that that's also sort of vague, but that's what I'm paying attention to. <laughs> and good for you. I mean, I get it. I, I, we, most of us are guilty of that. And so if we do pay more attention to it and realize that we're spending money on things that don't really matter too much to us, then I think it's easier to cut that spending and not feel like you're missing out on things. Because oftentimes, as soon as you start thinking about budgeting, it automatically feels like a diet. And if you instead think of it as, and a lot of people use this word, a spending plan, where you want your money to go and making sure that your spending aligns with your values, then it doesn't feel so restrictive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and my goal in having these conversations and putting more of a focus on money is just to give some more space and some more room for, like you said, like paying attention. I think that like one of the issues with money stuff is that it's really easy to fall into this like morality, good, bad binary, right? Like you're either good with money or you're bad with money or you did this good thing or you made this mistake and it can feel like really shamey and really judgmental and kind of like stepping away from that and just having more honest conversations around like, hey, what works for you? What have you been thinking about? And like opening up some more like self-kindness around that is really important to me. I agree. You know, and I often, because I am a personal finance journalist, I often have people tell me, oh, you're so good with money. You know so much about money. And it wasn't like I was born that way. (laughs) I had to learn it. And I think anyone is capable of learning more about money if they feel like they don't know enough already. There are so many free resources out there online. You can go to your local library and pick up a book. And it's not that complicated. You don't have to be a math whiz to understand the basics of your personal finances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like sort of the empowerment and what you're saying of you can learn like one thing at a time. I'm also really interested in personal finance. And one of the things that I did when I was feeling quite overwhelmed, I really wasn't given, you know, a financial education growing up. It's not something that my parents really knew a lot about. And I think that's a common story, you know, from other friends that I have talked to. And I remember one day, and this, I mean, this was a while ago now, like almost 10 years ago, I sat down and wrote out like a list of all of my questions because I felt so overwhelmed of, you know, just this story I was telling myself. I'm like, I don't understand money. I don't understand how to do this. This is too complicated for me. I never learned this. I'm behind. And so I was like, okay, what do I want to know? And I just started writing out all of my questions and some of them felt really silly. And some of them felt like, oh, I should know this already. But the fact was that I didn't. And then once I started taking it one question at a time of like, okay, you know, for the next two weeks, I'm going to research this question. Like it wound up being a lot more achievable and a lot simpler than I had feared that it was going to be. I love that. I love it. (laughs) I think that's a great idea to write down your questions and then you can just go online and type it into the search and see what the search results show you. That's such an awesome way to approach it. (laughs) So will you tell me the story of how you got started as a personal finance journalist? To be honest, I fell into it by accident. 
you know, like I said, I wasn't born knowing a lot about money. I, my parents didn't teach me anything about money. I grew up in a single income household. My mother stayed at home to raise my sister and me while my father went to work as an attorney. So we were always taken care of financially. We didn't have to struggle, but we didn't talk about money in my house. And so I had to figure out a lot of things on my own. And I made a lot of mistakes. And really one of my biggest mistakes when I was starting out was not realizing the benefit of saving for my future. I wasn't making a lot of money when I started out as a journalist and I was just working in a daily newspaper, just trying to scrape by. You know, I look back now and think, you know, I there was probably room for me to set aside a little bit, even just a little bit. Um, you know, and that trend continued with me for for several years until I went to graduate school. I got my master's in journalism after having landed a job at Dow Jones Newswires as a business reporter. And I decided, you know, I, I think I want to stick in this line of reporting. That's why I decided to get my master's in economic journalism, take all those courses I never took as an undergrad. I didn't take economics. I didn't take statistics. I stayed away from those things because I was a writer. That's what I wanted to do. And when I graduated um, from my master's program, it was 2001. We were heading into a recession and Dow Jones had a hiring freeze. I could not get my job back there. Other business-related news outlets, they also had hiring freezes. But Kiplinger's Personal Finance Magazine was looking for an editor for its website. And they were willing to take a chance on me, even though I had not written about personal finance before. And, and I'll let you in on a little secret. So a lot of times journalists, you know, you, you tend to have an area that you cover, your specialty, so to speak. And when you're working for a daily newspaper, it might be cops and courts. Well, I mean, how many people know about the court system, the legal system? You don't. You learn on the job. And that's what I had to do when I started writing about personal finance. I learned on the job by interviewing lots of experts. And I've been doing this for 18 years now. And honestly, I am so glad I ended up in the field of personal finance journalism because it helped me learn how to manage my own money better mm-hmm. because I, I mean, I was not doing a great job and educating myself gave me the tools I needed to make better decisions about my money. Mm-hmm. Do you remember one of the earlier I'll call it like an aha moment. Like, let's say you were interviewing an expert and you were like, oh man, I didn't know that. And like to take it then and like apply it to your life. It doesn't have to be one of the earlier ones, but if there's anything that pops up of a thing that sort of you learned based on, you know, reporting and uh, like interviewing other people that wound up having a big impact on you then like personally in your own finances. Two things in particular stand out to me. And one is something that I mentioned already. It's that spending plan, thinking about, a budget as a spending plan instead of a budget, that was eye-opening. Because as I said, when you think about a budget, it feels so restrictive. If you think about it as a spending plan, where you want your money to go, instead of focusing on everything you need to cut back on, it just makes the process so much easier. So that was that was an aha moment for me when I interviewed someone and they told me about that for the first time. And another thing that really opened my eyes was talking to a financial psychologist. I've interviewed him many times over the years. 
super smart guy, super interesting guy. And we were talking about people's money stories. And this is the way you think about and handle money based on how you were raised around money. Because honestly, what we were raised to believe about money and what how we saw our parents handle money when we were growing up, that greatly affects our beliefs about money. You know, so if you grew up in a household, for example, where, you know, maybe you were from a lower income family and your parents were always talking negatively about money or wealthy people, oh, they're rich, they're greedy, they're terrible. Those beliefs stick with you. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that financial psychologist, he's done studies, you know, and when you, when you head into life with those beliefs, actually people who believe, you know, the, the rich are bad, they're more likely to have a lower income. So it, that was, that was really eye opening. You know, it helped me look back at some of the things that I was taught or really wasn't taught about money and realizing how it has shaped my own interactions with money. And I think it's so important to do that because then it opens your eyes to maybe some of the mistakes that you're making. Like, oh, that's why I want to go shopping when this happens. Or that's why I feel like I need to spend money on this. Or that's why, you know, I think the rich are greedy and money is bad. So, you know, I would encourage anyone to think back on what they were taught about money growing up. And think about how that has influenced the way you handle money as an adult. Yeah, I love that. One follow-up question on that for you. What specifically have you found that helps you to sort of rewrite those stories? Is it Has it just been the awareness and acknowledgement? Is there anything that you have done when you've realized, oh, huh, this thing that I either I was taught about money or, you know, have been believing for years and years isn't really serving me and I want to pivot, you know, how to do that? Awareness certainly helps. And it also goes back to figuring out what your own values are. So important. You know, you figure out what you value. And and honestly, you know, travel isn't so much of a value. It's, you know, what you would say the value is there is maybe enjoying life to the fullest. Travel is just one aspect of it. You know, maybe you value family time. Maybe you value success. Um, figure out what you value, then you can set your goals around those values. And so like, if you value enjoying life to the fullest, your goal might be to travel around the world so that you can see more and do more. Maybe you value family time more than anything. So your goal might be to, you know, this year, ask your boss if you can work from home so that you can have a more flexible schedule and spend more time with your kids. Knowing what you value can help you set your goals and then align your spending with those values and help you actually catch yourself when you're kind of falling back on those old ways that you were raised with and tell yourself, you know what, that's not, that's not important to me. I know it's not important to me. I, you know, it's just something that I was taught growing up, but I realized that, you know, having the biggest house on the block isn't important because what I value more is, you know, maybe I want to retire earlier. I want to spend more time with my family, whatever it is, you know, Having that realization, putting your values down on writing, that helps. Yeah. You get past any of those kind of old money beliefs that are stuck in your head. Yeah, I love that. The idea of like being really clear on what's true for you and then using that as sort of like a touch point or a thing to check back in with, right? Like when that 
you know, thought pattern, old thought pattern does come up or that thing to be like, oh, cute, right? Like it's this, this thing again, like I recognize this thought, but as I already know, I, I value this thing instead, right? It's just the like continual like realignment with what you have like know to be true about you now. Yes. So one of the things that I know that you enjoy is making complex personal finance topics easier for people to understand, which I'm super appreciative of. Like, yes, more people (laughs) doing that. Um, Other than what's covered in your book, which we're going to dig into deeply right after this, what's one of your favorite complex personal finance topics to break down for folks? Um, I think it would be saving money. And I don't mean because so many people focus on this, saving money by cutting their costs. You know, people love to talk about ways to save money at the grocery store at, you know, when they're shopping, that's not, that's not saving money. That's, that's spending less. I'm talking about actually setting money aside for the future, which is really difficult for a lot of us to do because it's so much easier to focus on the now it's you get you know, you get a bigger rush when you go out and you buy something, putting that money into a retirement account that you're not going to touch for decades. That doesn't give you the same thrill as buying something. And so I, I really enjoy helping people realize the value in saving for the future. Um, and honestly, the younger you start saving, the easier it is. You don't have to set aside a lot of money if you're not making a lot of money. Because thanks to time and this special magical power called compound interest, you invest your money in your retirement account into stocks or better yet, a stock mutual fund, an index fund that tracks the performance of a major stock index. So you're basically getting exposure to a lot of different stocks, which is a good idea. You don't want to put all your money into one stock because if that company goes under, then there goes all your money. Invest your money and that money will grow and it will grow over time. So even if you start out by putting just aside a little bit, if you're young in your 20s, that money is going to grow to a large amount of money by the time you want to use it in retirement when you're in your 60s or maybe even your 50s. If you wait until your 40s to start saving, you have to set aside a whole lot more. I mean, we're talking, you know, five times more than you would have when you were in your 20s, 10 times more just to get to the same amount in that retirement account by the time you're in your 60s because your money doesn't have as much time to grow. And so, you know, save early if you can. But if you haven't started saving already, that's okay. You still have time to catch up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think is really common, this feeling of like being too late, right? This idea of like, is it too late for me? Right. And like, sure, maybe it would have been better if, you know, 17 year old Nicole was doing this and she wasn't (laughs) and okay. Right. So like anything that I'm going to do right now, you know, is better than not doing anything at all. It is. It's not too late because what's the alternative? If you don't save anything at all and you don't want to work for the rest of your life, the alternative is having to rely on social security and You're not, even if you are, you know, earning a lot of money now, your social security check is only going to be so big. Mm -hmm. There's a limit on the amount that the government pays out and it's not much. I mean, you know, we're talking, you know, around $2,500 
and and this is just kind of, you know, I'm not exact with that, but that's going to be around the maximum that you would get if you are, you know, you know, earning, you know, good income. And because like I said, there are limits, you know, the average is only around $1,400 a month. Yeah. And, and that's more than my parents get. Yeah. So. Right. And mm-hmm. imagine living on $1,400 a month. It's not much. Yeah. Um, so obviously we're not going to go too deeply into um, investment stuff because we have other good things to talk <laughs> about, but do you have any favorite resources? If someone's like, okay, you know, I'm going to Google compound interest. I'm going to start to think about this. Do you have any kind of beginner friendly investment resource recommendations for people to check out? You know, honestly, there's so many out there. If you Google it, my suggestion, though, is to when you're reading, you know, if you do the Google search for compound interest or you do the Google search for how to save more for retirement, I would click on the search results that come from established publications rather than a blog. And that is not at all to criticize bloggers because there are a lot of great bloggers out there. But I think I would start with publications such as Kiplinger's, I I write for um, Go Banking Rates Now, Nerd Wallet, Bankrate. And the reason I say that is because these publications, they have fact checkers. So the reporter is going to do the research and write the story, but you've got someone who's going to go back and check everything to make sure it's correct. And so it's just you know, it's, it's in helping to ensure that you're getting accurate information. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. So pivoting a bit, you wrote a book that I found super helpful, which is why I wound up reaching out to you about how to talk to your parents about their finances, which maybe I'm not paying attention, but like, I feel like nobody's talking about this other than you really, or at least not at the level that I wish was happening. And it was very much a breath of fresh air to start to dig into this and address some of my own like fears and roadblocks around this. And um, I would love to start by asking you to tell the personal story from your life that led you to decide, you know what, I'm going to write this book. Sure. So I wrote the book because I did not had these conversations with my parents until it was too late, almost. In the case of my father, he passed away at the age of 61. He died without a will, and he was in a second marriage. Uh, what's really interesting is that he was an attorney, so he should have known better. You know, and I often hear from people, well, you know, my parents are on top of their finances. I'm sure they are. There's no need for me to talk to them. I know they're on top of all this stuff. Well, you know, my dad was an attorney. He should have had a will. He knew better, but he didn't. So don't assume that your parents are on top of their finances. Um, that was one part of it. The The bigger part, though, was that my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease when she was 65 and I was only 35 at the time. I had two young kids. I have three now. And honestly, I thought my mom was going to be there for me to help me with my kids. But it turned out that I had to be the one to help take care of my mother. And a big part of that was helping her with her finances. And I had not had detailed conversations with my mom about her finances before she started having memory troubles. Now, right around the time that she her memory issues were becoming very obvious, I did tell her that I thought she should go in and meet with an attorney to update all of her legal documents, which she did. And we can you know go into more detail about those legal documents. But if I hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have been able to step in and actually start helping her out with her finances legally. 
Uh, fortunately, I did take that step. But even though I had done that, I was having to figure out her finances by playing detective, essentially. And I didn't like having to do that at all. And I had to make decisions for my mom for her about her care as her Alzheimer's got worse. You know, I did talk her into selling her house when I saw that she could no longer stay there. She moved in with me. But when it came time for her to be in full-time, round-the-clock professional care in an assisted living facility, I had the conversation with her, but her memory at that point was so bad that she would forget those conversations within five minutes. So essentially I had to make the decision for her and it would have been so much easier if I had talked to her beforehand to figure out, you know, what type of care she would want just, just to actually give me a little bit more peace of mind, knowing that I was making the right decision for her. Um, you know, and at, because I was so young when this happened, I didn't have any friends to go to to ask for help because no one else I knew was going through this. But by the time I was in my forties and my friends were starting to go through the same thing that I had gone through with my mom, they were all coming to me and asking me for advice. You know, Oh, I can see my parents are having some health issues or I can see that they're starting to have memory issues or maybe it was, you know, their in-laws or whatever. And they were asking me because they knew that I had already gone through it. And that's when I realized that I could help people by writing a book about my experiences, by reaching out to all the financial experts I knew, talking to legal experts, and actually talking to a lot of just ordinary people who had had the conversation to to offer people a guide to having these conversations that are so, so important. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's, it's so funny to me how sometimes the things that touch, like, all of our lives or almost all of our lives in some capacity are yet the things that we don't really talk about that much, right? I feel like money falls into that category. And like this specifically, almost everyone is going to be in this situation, right? With a parent or an elder of some kind. And yet it's just not, I mean, at least in like my friend groups, it's just like not part of the conversation. No, because you're right. Money is a taboo topic. And gosh, imagine trying to talk to your parents about money, especially if they're like my parents and they raise you to think that talking about money is impolite. You know, and so you're thinking, well, why would I ever have this conversation? I think for starters, most people don't even realize they need to have this conversation. But as you said, there is a very good chance that you will have to get involved in your parents' financial lives as they age. And even if you don't have to become a caregiver or help support your parents financially, your parents are going to die. Everyone dies. And if they don't have a will and you have to deal with what's left behind and there is no will, it just makes things so much more difficult. Even if they have a will, it can be difficult. If you even, if you don't have an accounting of what they have, then you have to go through and sort through everything and, you know, make sure that that shoe box under the bed doesn't have stock certificates in it that you're going to throw away. If you have these conversations while your parents are relatively young and healthy, then you can be prepared for those emergency situations that might pop up. You'll be prepared when they die. It'll make it easier because these are all very emotional situations. You know, when your parent has a health issue with a parent develops dementia when a parent dies. So the last thing you want to have to think about 
is the financial side of things. If you have these conversations beforehand, that's one less thing you have to worry about when that emergency arises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like it's one of those things that's really easy to continue to, oh, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Right. And to your point, it sounds like, you know, with your mom, you did it just in time. Barely. Yes. Barely in time. And I had actually had a conversation with her, uh, when I had moved back to my home state of Kentucky, I was living in Washington, DC. And this was before my mom developed dementia. I told her mom, I think you should look into getting a long-term care insurance policy. And a long-term care insurance policy will help pay for care in an assisted living facility, in a nursing home, and even in your own home. Medicare does not pay for this. So if your parents think that Medicare is going to pay for their care if they ever need it, it will not. Medicaid will, but you have to be very low income to qualify. So knowing that my mom and dad were divorced, she was on her own. That's why I suggested she look into getting a long-term care insurance policy to pay for her care if she ever needed it. She took my advice. She talked to an insurance agent, but unfortunately, she had a pre-existing health condition that made her too high risk. So she couldn't get coverage. And that point is when I should have sat down with her and said, okay, mom, you can't get long-term care insurance. Let's look at your finances and figure out how you would pay for long-term care if you ever needed it. But I didn't because I just didn't even realize it was a conversation I needed to have. And so when she started having those memory issues, at that point, it was going to be a different conversation. It wasn't a what if. What if this happens, mom, you should look into long-term care insurance. You can't get long-term care insurance. Let's talk about how you pay for it. At that point, it was me realizing that she was having trouble remembering things. And I didn't have to be the one to tell her, mom, I think there's a problem here. I didn't have any issues talking about the financial side of things, but if I started bringing up the money side of things, I would have to explain to her, mom, we need to have this conversation because you're having trouble remembering. And I just, I didn't want to have to be the one to break the news to her. And honestly, what I did is call up her doctor and say to him, you know, the next time my mom is in there for an appointment, can you please encourage her to go get tested for Alzheimer's? And he did. And, and I and I write that in the book, you know, sometimes getting a third party involved to, to help get your parents to open up about their finances works. I didn't have to do that for my mom's finances. I did it because of her dementia. She was tested and it actually the first test came back and showed that she did not have Alzheimer's, which honestly, I don't even know how. But she had a friend who talked her into getting a test several months later. And it was around that time that we met with the attorney and got all of her legal documents updated. And fortunately, she was still competent enough at that point to sign them. And that's the key here. You have to be mentally competent to sign a will, sign a power of attorney document, sign a living will, which is also called an advanced directive. And that power of attorney document lets you name someone to make financial decisions for you if you no longer can. And the living will also called the Advanced Healthcare Directive, lets you spell out what sort of end of life care you do or do not want. Do you want to be on life support, for example? Do you want to be resuscitated? And it also lets you name someone to make healthcare decisions for you. So my mother named me and my sister her power of attorney. She named us our she named us her healthcare power of attorney, updated the will, and 
the nice thing about meeting with the attorney was that the attorney suggested some next steps that we needed to take. You know, go to your mom's bank, make sure you're on the account so that you have easy access to them if you need it. Um, if I had waited any longer to get my mom to meet with an attorney, she would not have been competent enough to sign those documents. Then I would have had to go through the court system to be named her conservator and guardian to make financial and healthcare decisions for her. That can take several months. It can cost thousands of dollars because you're hiring an attorney for your parents. You're hiring an attorney for yourself. You're putting your parent on trial, essentially, proving that they're no longer competent enough. You have to get a doctor to come in and testify. I mean, it's horrible. No family should have to go through that. And it could be avoided if you simply have enough courage to ask your parents, hey, mom and dad, have you taken, you know, steps to be prepared in case something happens? You know, if you end up in the hospital and we have to write checks for you to make sure your bills get paid. And they might be like, you know, no, I've never even thought of that. And then you say, well, you know, you would maybe you want to meet with an attorney. And, you know, in addition to getting a will drafted, you can get a power of attorney document drafted. You can name someone to make financial decisions for you and you can name someone to make healthcare decisions for you so that when something happens, all of that is in place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I as your child or my siblings or whomever you want to name to make these decisions for you, they'll be able to step in and help you out easily. Yes, it costs a little bit of money, but it's going to cost a lot less than having your family members, loved ones have to go through the court system to get conservatorship or guardianship to make those decisions for you if you're no longer able to. Yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned is that this can be quite an emotional topic, right? Um, I think it's one of the things that falls under the category of simple, but not easy, right? Necessarily <laughs> where like it's, you know, you just said, okay, will living will power of attorney, right? Like putting together a concise list of the information that ideally you would want to have access to, or, you know, the, how the conversation would go, I think on paper sounds really simple. And yet, for a lot of us, not easy, as you said, depending upon if money is even something you've ever talked about with your parents. So I'd love to back up a bit and ask you what you think are some of the most common fears that people have about starting this conversation. Some of the biggest fears that people have are that their parents are going to think they're being nosy or that they're going to, that they're being greedy. If you're, especially if you're asking about whether your parents have a will because you might be afraid your parents are thinking you're asking this question because you want to know what you're going to get when they die. You might also be afraid that you're going to upset your parents and it's going to hurt your relationship. But I want people to know that oftentimes we blow these fears out of proportion in our heads. And I want people to think, you know, is my mom really going to think I'm being nosy if I let her know that I want to have this conversation because I'm looking out for her best interest? Is my dad really going to think I'm being greedy just because I want to make sure there's a plan in place? I don't care what I'm going to get. I just want to know, does he have his wishes in writing? You know, are my parents going to get mad because I asked them, hey, mom and dad, if something ever happened to you and you were in the hospital, how would I pay your bills for you? If you approach it out of love and out of respect, and if you let your parents know that you want to have this conversation, 
because you're looking out for their best interest, that you want to know what their wishes are, that you want to have a plan so that all of you can have peace of mind, then most likely they're not going to think you're being nosy or greedy. They're not going to blow up at you. They're certainly not going to send you to your room and ground you because you're an adult now. Now, that doesn't mean that every parent is going to open up right away. Some parents might say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you brought this up because I've been meaning to have this conversation with you myself. Some parents, they might not say anything right away, but they might think about it and they might come back to you and they might say, I've been thinking about this for a while. And you're right. We do need to have these conversations. And then there will probably be some parents, not probably, there will be some parents who don't want to open up. And you need to realize it could take time, but that doesn't mean you should give up. You can try a variety of different approaches to have the conversation. And you might have to realize that it could take sometimes years for them to get comfortable with the idea of talking to you. And that's why it's so important to try to start these conversations sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about different ways you can start the conversation so it's not so awkward and things you can do for those parents who are really reluctant to open up and talk to you. Yeah, I would love I would love to do that. I have been reflecting on like for me what are my fears, right? And having th- this conversation and one of the things that has come up for me and I'm sure that I'm not alone in this is um my parents have struggled financially quite a bit for many years and one of my fears and this doesn't <laughs> like all a lot of fears are illogical, right? Like it's still worth having the conversation, but is a fear of really finding out the reality of that there isn't enough money there and like this is going to somehow be my my responsibility that like I'm going to have to find the money to do for them what they can't do for themselves. And, you know, I'm still trying to get my financial life in order. And so I think part of my fear, and maybe that's like a really specific one. I don't know if you've heard that from people before, but is, okay, like we're going to have this conversation and I know already that the information isn't going to be good. And I sort of have my head in the sand about it. <laughs> Your fear is not unusual. A lot of people have this fear. And this is what I would say to you. If you're afraid that your parents might have to rely on you because maybe they haven't done the best job with their finances, wouldn't you rather know this now when you have time to perhaps prepare your own finances for the possibility that you might have to provide them support in some way, then wait until the moment when they're actually coming to you and asking for help. And then suddenly you have to scramble and make some serious adjustments to your own financial life. Yeah, I mean, logically, yes. Like 100%, yes. Yes, yes. (laughs) But I also think it's interesting when you start to get into like money from any angle, the like resentment potentially that can come up or, you know, like the shame around it. You know, I uh, can imagine um, that, you know, maybe for someone who isn't like confident in their financial situation, right? Like maybe there's parents that are going to feel a lot of shame around their kids coming to them to talk about this. And I feel like that's probably a relevant aspect too. Yes. And honestly, that's the bigger issue. Your fear is a hurdle that certainly you have to overcome. But if you know that your parents haven't managed their money well, then yes, there's a good chance that they might be reluctant to talk with you because they're embarrassed. And that's understandable. I mean, who wants to admit that they haven't handled their money so well, that they don't have a lot set inside set aside in savings, that they don't have any sort of plan to pay for long-term care if they ever need it. That's something that's very difficult for a parent to admit to a child 
because, you know, it's like a role reversal. You know, we, our parents, you know, see themselves in the role of giving advice to their kids. They don't want to have to go to their kids and admit that they've made mistakes and now they're going to ask their kids to help them out. No parent wants to be a burden on their child. So parents who are not on top of their finances, there is a good chance that they will be reluctant, at least initially, to talk with their children. And it's so important to before you talk to your parents or try to talk to them to anticipate reasons why they might be reluctant to talk with you. So in your case, you know, your parents haven't done such a good job with their finances. And that could be a very key reason why they don't want to talk to you because they might be embarrassed. So as you start to have the conversation, you have to be very aware of this. And as you approach them, you don't want to approach them in any way that makes it look like you are judging them for the way they've handled their finances, that you're being condescending, that you think that you know more than they do, because then they're going to shut down. Mm-hmm. You want to, you know, really keep the conversation. Um, actually, you probably want to not make the conversation about money initially. Maybe talk about kind of a bigger picture topic, not like how much have you saved for retirement, mom and dad, but hey, mom and dad, what does retirement look like for you? And your parents might say, well, we're really not sure. We might have to just keep working until we can't work anymore. And then keep the conversation going from there if they're willing to keep talking to you about it. You know, or it could simply be a matter of starting very simply by not even trying to talk to them about their finances, but maybe offering them help, but not as in, hey, mom and dad, I want to help you get your finances in order. But hey, mom and dad, I found this great website about meal planning. And it's been helping me save a lot of money at the grocery store every week. And I just thought I'd share it with you because, hey, who doesn't like sharing money? And, you know, I thought maybe you'd like it because I really liked it and it's helped me save money. Or, hey, mom and dad, I have, um, you know, I started automating all my bill payments and it's been so great because now I don't have to worry about making late payments and dealing with those late fees. Have you done this? Offering them help in a way like that. So they start to get comfortable with the idea of discussing money, even on a very, you know, basic level with you, you know, offering them tips on things that you've done to help improve your finances, but doing so in a way that it doesn't look like you're criticizing what they've done. So Mm -hmm. you have to be, you know, you have to be careful about it, but you're going to have to work your way in slowly. If you think your parents are embarrassed about their finances and you don't want them to feel ashamed and shut you out from the conversation. Yeah. So circling back um, a little bit to some of the other fears that you mentioned, right? Like of appearing nosy or greedy and some of those common things. Is there anything else that you wanted to share about potentially how to just start this conversation without it being quite so awkward? Sure. So there are a variety of ways you can start the conversation. If you're young, one of the easiest ways to do it is to ask your parents for advice. And I know that sounds a little bit backward, but parents love giving advice. And you don't even have to really need that advice from your parents, but it's a way to open the door to a conversation. For example, 
let's say you just got married. And so you ask your parents, hey, mom and dad, you know, I've been wondering since I got married, do I need to have life insurance now? Is this a good time for me to get a will? And your parents answer will likely give you a clue as to what they've done. They might Mm. say, oh, yes, of course, you need life insurance. You know, we've had a policy since forever and you're the beneficiary or, you know, this is the type of insurance we got. Or they might say, oh, my gosh, yes, we never got life insurance. You should do this. Do it while you're young so you can get a good rate. Or they might say, yeah, make sure you get a will. Or I don't know. I never bothered to get a will. You know, then you can say, well, hey, let's look into it together. Maybe we can both meet with an attorney. Ask your parents for advice because it allows you to maintain the role of the child, the parent to maintain the role of the parent, and it allows the parent to give advice, which is what they love doing. And then, like I said, their answer is going to give you clues as to what they've done. You know, another thing that you could do is use a story. Talk about maybe someone you know whose parents died without a will and how difficult it was for everyone who was left behind. Or talk about someone whose parent or grandparent died with a will and how easy it made things for their family. Or maybe you have a colleague at work who's had to take time off to care for a a parent. And you could ask your parents, hey, if if something were to happen to you, what, what would we do? Would you count on me to help you out? Do you have a way to pay for care? You know, sharing those stories is a good way. And it can even be using an article that you read online or a podcast that you hear and say, hey, I I heard this woman who was talking about how her mother was diagnosed with with Alzheimer's at the age of 65 and she had not talked to her about her finances. And then when she had to go in and start helping her mom, she didn't even know what sort of financial account she had. So stories are a great and easy way to start these conversations. And another easy way is to simply ask your parents about what if scenarios I have a friend who did this and really it just worked beautifully for her. She asked her mom, mom, and her mom is living on her own because her parents are divorced. And she said, mom, what if something were to happen to you and you were in the hospital? How would I pay your bills? What would that look like? And her mom said, I'm so glad you asked me this because I never even thought about it. Went home, made a list of all of her bills, how she paid them, gave them to her daughter. It was as simple as that. Mm -hmm. So it, it doesn't have to be as difficult as you might think it will be. It's, you know, it's, it might seem like it's going to be really awkward, but, you know, there's a good chance that it won't. There's a good chance that the conversation might go incredibly well. And it's not going to be just one conversation. This has to be a series of conversations. Maybe it's a series of conversations just to get your parents to open up. If they are willing to talk to you, you don't want them to sit down and spend hours with you you know, pouring over all their accounts and giving you all the details, that's exhausting. (laughs) You can have these conversations over several meetings, over several phone calls. In fact, you could even ask your parents to write this information down and they could either give it to you or they could put it someplace safe and just tell you how to access it and under what circumstances you can access it. And this can work really well for parents who are reluctant to share information because it's a control issue. They don't want to give up this information because for them, it might feel like losing control. You just simply tell them, look, I don't need it right now, but write it down. Make a list of all your accounts, your passwords, what type of insurance policies you have. Put it someplace safe. Tell me how to access it and tell me when I can access it so that when an emergency arises, I can help you out. 
Yeah, that's really, really smart to like bridge that gap too. It's not like, okay, you have to divulge all of your things to me, but it like is a empowering way to have a plan B created. Then everyone kind of has peace of mind about that and, you know, to know how to access it when it's time. That's such good advice. Yeah. Um, it, so kind of going into some more specifics, let's say our parents are willing to talk about it, right? Like to go into this sort of the like, now what do you have recommendations for what sort of information we need to be finding out from them? I do. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so one of the key things you need to find out, and, and if this is the only thing you can find out, then that's good. You need to find out whether they have those legal documents that I mentioned, the will, the power of attorney documents, the living will or advanced healthcare directive. Because as I said, these documents have to be drafted and signed while your parents are still competent. I mean, you can't wait till after a stroke to, to get these documents signed. It can be too late at that point. These need to be in place. And if your parents cannot afford to meet with an attorney, there are free and low cost options out there. Now, ideally they should meet with an attorney because those documents will be drafted specifically to their situation. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, meeting with that professional, that legal professional can help your parents recognize what other steps they might be taking with their finances. And, you know, if they need to get you involved with their finances, because it helped with me and my mom. Um, but there are free and low cost options out there to get a will power of attorney, living will, oftentimes doctor's offices will have that living will document that patients can get and sign and they'll hand them out for free. So there are options out there for that. Just encourage your parents to get those documents drafted and signed. If they have them already, that's wonderful. Ask your parents where they are located so that you and your siblings can access them if necessary. And then the next thing you want to find out is how do they pay their bills? And this is so important in case there is that emergency. You know, do they pay it by check or do they have things set up to be paid automatically? And if they're still writing checks, you probably want to encourage your parents to set up automatic bill payment and you can help them do that. I'll help you do this, mom and dad. And when you're doing that, that's going to you know, actually help give you insight into their accounts. It's going to let you know where they're banking and what sort of accounts they have. So, Find out how they're paying their bills. You don't necessarily have to know the dollar amount that they're paying. But of course, the more information you can get, the better. If they're willing to talk to you, then yes, you want to find out, well, what sort of bills do you have? Do you still have a mortgage? You know, do you have um, do you have debts that you're paying? What sources of income do you have? Are you relying on a pension? Are you relying on a retirement account? Are you relying on Social Security? You know, obviously, if they're working still, they have income from a job or their business. Do they have, you know, investments that are supporting them? Do they have real estate property? Uh, the more detail you can get, the better. And the other thing that you want to find out is, do they have a plan to pay for long-term care if they need it? Because as I said, Medicare will not pay for long-term care. Long-term care insurance will. It's not cheap. You have to be in good health to get it. Ideally, if you get it in your 50s, you're going to get, and you're in good health still in your 50s, you're going to get a pretty good rate. Um, encourage your parents to look into it if they don't have it. There, obviously, you can save up the money to pay for it out of pocket. There, 
couple of different other options, but you need a plan because I can tell you that assisted living, for example, currently it's around $4,000 a month and that's just an average room in a private nursing facility is going to cost twice as much. Wow. You know, having a home health aid is going to be around $4,000, $4,500 a month on average. It is not cheap. And if you think, well, of course, I'm going to help out my parents if I need it. Being a caregiver can be a full-time job. It is incredibly stressful. And if you have to spend all day caring for a parent and you have a job, what are you going to do? You're going to have to quit your job. And if you have kids who are relying on you, that's certainly not in a situation you want to be in. So if you're having these conversations while your parents are healthy, you can explore all the options that are available. You can come up with a plan. You know, maybe you encourage your parents to downsize, you know, before they hit retirement so that they can start spending less on their housing, set aside some of that money to pay for care so that if they want to receive care in home, they're in a home where they can actually stay as opposed to one that maybe has stairs and a bathtub that they can't even get into. You can come up with a plan. If you wait until they need that care, they need your help, your options are much more limited. Mm-hmm. And so, and I spell out in the book all, and, and there's, I have a long list in the book of all the information you need to gather. I actually have a resource on my website, CameronHuddleston.com that you can download. It is a And in case of emergency, downloadable fill in the blank form that you can give your parents where they have to fill out all their financial information, you know, down to Social Security number, Medicare number. You can give it to them, use it as a way to start the conversation, ask them to put it someplace safe or if they want, they can just give it to you. But ideally, you kind of want them to hang on to it so they can update it as time goes on if they change their passwords. Um, But like I said, The more information you can get, the better, but at the least find out whether they have those legal documents because those are so, so important. Yeah, this is so helpful. So um, in the the other sort of end of the spectrum, when you said, you know, parents that might not want to share information about their finances with us, and you've given some tips about that already, but um, other than what has already been covered, is there anything that you have found to be helpful um, about essentially like how to get them to open up more? (laughs) So if your parents are really reluctant, one option is to get a third party involved. Maybe reach out to another family member, you know, maybe your parents' siblings, maybe especially if they have siblings who are on top of their finances and maybe they've had these conversations with their kids, you know, and call up Aunt Sally and say, hey, Aunt Sally, I'd really love it if you could encourage mom to, to talk with us about her finances so that we can have a plan Maybe it's reaching out if they have an attorney already or they have a financial planner or an accountant. Now, they can't give you information, but you can ask them, just as I asked my mom's doctor to encourage my mom to get tested for Alzheimer's, ask them to encourage your parents to talk with you about their finances. Or maybe it's reaching out to a clergy member, a close friend, because oftentimes your parents are going to be more willing to listen to a peer or a professional than you, the child, because even if you are, you know, successful 30 something, they still see you as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And and so they might be more willing to take that advice from someone their own age as opposed to their child. So getting that third party involved can help. Um, like I said, getting them to write down the information. 
instead of telling you the information, that is one way to do it. You know, and another thing, you can use a little bit of psychology on them. So, and this is the advice that the uh, the financial psychologist gave to me. You know, maybe mom and dad are saying, well, I, you know, I don't want to talk to you or I don't, why do I need a will? I don't need a will. Let's not talk about this. And then, so you say to them, oh, you, so you say you don't need a will. So you don't think that's important. <laughs> and then they'll say, oh, no, no, I, I didn't say it was not important. I just don't want to talk about it. Oh, oh, so you don't think it's important to talk with me about whether you've spelled out your final wishes and who gets what. You you get your parents to realize that perhaps they need to think a little bit harder about why they should have these conversations with you. You know, by you don't want to like call out their shortcomings and their thinkings, but if you can delicately point it out to them that oh you don't want to talk to me about whether you have a will well that means what you don't want me to know whether you have things in writing or you don't think it's important to spell out who gets what you know not not criticizing them but pointing out to them the benefits of having these conversations you know and 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 letting them know hey it's really important for us to know what your wishes are um that can work sometimes but you have to expect that it can take time and you might have to try a variety of approaches. And what's really important is if your parents refuse to talk, and especially if you know that they might need your help someday, you need to get very clear on what you are willing and able to do to help them if they ever ask for help. You need to be prepared beforehand so that if they ever do come and ask you for help, that you already have a very clear idea in your head what type of support you might be willing to give to them. And if you know financially that you cannot afford to help them, you have to remember that your finances take priority, especially if you have children of your own, because you do not want to repeat the cycle. Um, And, you know, as much as we want to help out our parents because they raised us, you, you know, like what they always say on the, airplane, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first. You have to take care of your finances first. You don't want to jeopardize them to support your parents. And as terrible as it might feel, and, and I don't want to sound harsh by saying that, but it is true. You you do have to look out for yourself. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that reminder for sure. <laughs> I mean, all of this stuff, right? Like simple, but not easy. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, I mean, so we've already covered so much good stuff. And like, uh, you know, there's obviously, like you said, more resources on your website. And then, of course, the book itself. Is there anything, though, under this sort of topic of talking to our parents about their finances that hasn't come up that you wanted to make sure that you mentioned for folks? You know, we talked about the long-term care issue, which is something you should certainly discuss. But, you know, it's also important to talk to your parents about – you know, as they get older, you know, maybe where they see themselves and whether they plan on staying in their home, because this can be an important conversation, but again, a difficult one to have. But it might be it might be actually slightly easier than perhaps talking about some of the more financial issues, you know, asking your parents simply, hey, mom and dad, do you expect to stay in this house when you get older? And opening up that conversation to help them start exploring perhaps the possibility of downsizing 
you know, before they get to the point where it's necessary, um, you know, helping them look into what is out there as far as retirement communities. And and there are a lot of really awesome retirement communities out there. I mean, don't think that everyone is just, you know, like, (laughs) you know, sitting around in, you know, a dismal place. I mean, there are some swinging retirement communities out there that your parents might not even realize they exist. You know, and if you can kind of sell them on the idea of a place where they can be with other people their age and that they're not going to have to worry about maintenance and they'll have a smaller place so that they have more time to enjoy, you know, doing the things they like rather than taking care of a house. Just opening up that conversation can, um, you know, be a good way to start talking about some other topics too. But like I said, that can also be difficult because parents as you know, anyone can be very attached to the house. And I think, um, I think, a good idea might be, if you're okay with it, of course, is to let your parents know that you're not going to be upset if they sell the family home. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes parents feel like, well, I can't sell the family home. My kids are going to be upset. They're going to be upset that they don't have a place to go to during the holidays. And, you know, if, if you're okay with it, let your parents know it's okay, mom and dad, because I'm concerned about what's best for you. And maybe this house is too big for you now. And it's okay if you want to move someplace smaller. It's okay if we figure out a new place to celebrate the holidays. It's not a big deal. What's important is you. So that housing conversation can also be a very important conversation to have with your parents. Yeah, I also was thinking as you were talking, um, and I, I don't know if this is relevant for everyone, but my parents have a lot of stuff. And so they, <laughs> when you said the word downsizing, right, sort of another aspect of this conversation for me is talking to them about their belongings, right, especially all the stuff that they own that I don't want, which can, again, be sort of like an emotional minefield, but I'm adding that to my list as well. <laughs> again, it's another way to start the conversation, you know, asking your parents, you know, and the way to do it, approach it tactfully is to simply say to your parents, you know, mom and dad, you you have, you know, I'm sure a lot of these things that you have in the house has special meaning for you. I would love if you could tell me what things mean the most to you so that I am aware, you know, what things are important to you. You know, as you get older, want to make sure we hang on to these things. And, you know, maybe you have no plan, honestly, of hanging on to them. But, you know, letting your parents know that you, um, that you're interested in it. That, that if it's important to them, it's important to you, too. Um, but, you know, who knows? You might even be able to talk your parents into getting rid of some of that stuff sooner rather than later mm-hmm. and letting them know, hey, it's OK. If you you don't have to pass this stuff on to me, it's OK. You don't feel like you have to hang on to it. Go ahead. Get rid of it if you want to. Yeah, but I love that suggestion that you just gave about, you know, asking them what's the most important or what would, you know, what they would most want you to have or like what they would most want me to have, right? And sort of as a way to be like, okay, if we're saying like this is the most important stuff, then like that sort of opens the door to are we willing to start together like downsizing some of the other stuff? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I love that. Okay, well, going to steal that. Thanks. Thank you for that. (laughs) I was also thinking, um, you know, as you've been talking that uh, it's going to be helpful for me to enlist a friend to be sort of like an accountability buddy, like that, okay, maybe we both need to have these conversations with our parents, like to just like have that support or have like a sounding board of someone who's kind of going through the same thing. Which I think is a great idea. So certainly if you have siblings, you need to be talking with them before you even talk to your parents so all of you can get on the same page. And yes, hold each other accountable, um, you know, now and in the future as your parents age and you have to get involved. But if you're an only child, sure, call up a friend and say, hey, I'm going to do this. 
What do you think? You want to do it too? Let's, 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 you know, encourage each other. We're going to, you know, come up with a plan together on how we're going to do it. Then we're going to check back in, make sure that we actually did it. I think it's a great idea because we all need someone to help hold us accountable to our goals. And that, I mean, that's any type of goal that we have. Yeah. I love that. Anything else that you wanted to say before we wrap up? I think we covered a lot. Yes, we um, definitely <laughs> did. I was going to ask you, um, you know, a, a sort of final question. If Obviously, you've given us a lot of action steps, but if you could leave the community, the listeners with one specific small call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a beginning action to take? So I would say make a commitment to having this conversation this year. If you're, you know, in the process still of hammering out what your 2020 resolutions are going to be, make this a goal to have this conversation with your parents this year. Honestly, there's no time with the, like the present to have it. You don't want to wait till your parents are having health issues. Do it while they're relatively young, while they're healthy, because then emotions won't be running high. And you can talk about that. What is scenario? Yeah, it makes it so much easier. Yeah. And also the the sort of additional bonus of thinking about this stuff is me being like, oh, what of these documents, like when might I need to do them for myself? Right? So it's like a two, two-pronged benefit to like having this top of mind. Yes. Yes. And you know what? You can even suggest that you go with your parents together yeah. and all of you meet with an attorney, write down all your accounts, because you can say that to your parents too. You know, hey, look, I just made this, you know, huge list of all of my accounts and I wanted to share it with you in case anything ever happened to me and you guys had to pay my bills for me. So yeah, yeah. It goes, I just, it goes both ways. <laughs> I just had the thought when you're like, we're all going to go to the attorney together in my mind. I'm like, how can I make this fun? Right? Like we're going to have the, like make our wills party. And like, maybe that's not an option, <laughs> but I do, I do like that idea in my mind. <laughs> we'll go out afterward and we'll have a nice meal and right. maybe a little wine and we'll toast to our, you know, peace of mind. Right. Like we will do our healthcare directives and then get massages or something. <laughs> Oh, I, I love, love it. it. Um, what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Well, you can find me at CameronHuddleston.com. There's a way to contact me through my website. And on the site, there are links to my social media accounts on Facebook, on Twitter. I'm trying to get more active on Instagram. I'm, I'm working hard at it, um, but I'm, I'm certainly active on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, like I said, on CameronHuddleston.com, there are some resources that are free that you can use to help you get the conversation started with your parents. Awesome. I will link to those resources. This was super informative and empowering. Cameron, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he just makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his wonderful sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Kara. Hi, Kara. Hey. So in the spirit of this being Money Month, we are going to do an honest round of money-related rapid-fire questions since I know that you are feeling brave and up to talking about this. 
I am. Huh, which I appreciate. I wish that it wasn't a thing that we like had to be brave to talk about, right? <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. It is scary a little bit. It is, but I appreciate it. So whatever you feel like sharing, first question, how much debt do you have? All righty. Well, I, um, so I have a husband and we have joint accounts and we also have our own separate accounts. So myself, um, I have a small amount on my visa, 500. And then in total, just my own personal is about 2,500. And then with my husband, um, it's about 14 grand. Yeah, I appreciate even just like hearing a little bit of, you know, we have our separate accounts, we have this. Like that's, I'm always so curious when someone's like has a partner or if they're sharing finances with someone, what that looks like. So yeah. And usually our debt, like both of us, we hate being in debt. So, um, the reason why we have the 14 now is because we just put on an addition in the summer to our house. So, um, we're just trying to pay that off. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your current income source and how much do you earn annually? Okay. I, I work full-time permanent at uh, the hospital and my salary is 79000 a year. Uh, my husband's is 91000 So our shared household income is one hundred seventy. Mm. I like love people's honesty around money so much. I'm just like grinning right now. <laughs> so grateful to you. Um, I guess like sort of follow-up question on that. How do you feel about current job and income? I'm happy with it. Yeah, we're we're pretty um, happy with uh, our shared income. If we're comfortable, you, yeah, totally. Um, so, if you have savings, will you share how much you have in savings and where you keep that? Yeah, so our savings—that's where it gets a little tricky. So we have two separate savings account on our in our joint. One is for trips, and one is for renovations, which both of those are always ongoing. <laughs> um, so. For our trip, well, we just went to Las Vegas in December. So our trip um, is our trip funds are very low, um, and our uh, okay. So my little savings on the side, which is my own little personal, is just a hundred right now because because I spent everything in Vegas. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's a great answer. So I don't you know, have a lot Vegas, of my, yeah. yeah, I don't have a lot of my savings right now, um, but I have a. TFSA account, uh, ta- you know, you know what that is, ta- tax-free savings yeah. account. I put four grand into that um, every year, which yeah, and then I have an RSP, which is thirty-eight grand, and then both of us both. Uh, he's a teacher, and we both have really good pensions as well with work. Um, and then I have uh, this critical illness insurance. Um, so when I'm 65, I'll get 40K back from that. If, knock on wood, I don't get a critical illness that I need that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, and in our joint, our reno right now, we're trying to pay off our addition, but right now we only have $250 in our reno savings and our trip savings is at a big 35 bucks. Cause again, Vegas. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's like the short-term savings where you're like saving it to spend it down. Right. Which totally that's right. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Will you talk a little bit about where you have had uh, financial support in your life? If that's something that you've had from family, maybe, or spouse inheritance, um, if that is something that has been a reality for you. Uh, previously, 
I was very lucky. My I went to university and my parents were able to pay for that. So I have never had any debt there. I'm very fortunate. And um, as per now, we don't have anything. However, my mom passed in September and I will pro- we're working through everything there, her estate and all that stuff. But I think I will be getting a bit once everything's all said and done after taxes and after the next year is done and everything's closed, I'll probably get, I don't know, maybe about 20,000 there. That's it. Yeah. What does budgeting look like for you? Is that something that you do, that you love, that you hate, that you care about, that you don't care about? Oh, I do care about it a lot. For me personally, uh, mine's very simple. I get paid bi-weekly and I just have two pieces of paper, one for the 15th of the month, one for the 30th of the month. And that little piece of paper tells me where I transfer my money to, who to pay. And then for me, how I budget is I take out cash every week. Um, I take out $170 every week and that's just my cash for spending. Like, And that includes gas to work, which is about 60 bucks a week. I live in the boonies. So, um, and then just my play money. And then, um, but my husband, we, for our marriage, he's an Excel, uh, guru and everything is tracked in there. It's broken down, but, and everything's color coded. He's crazy, crazy. And I love it. And I'm so happy that he does that. So he's way more, um, intense than I am. Yeah. I love that. I am also a big fan of the like spreadsheets and like deeply enjoy budgeting and figuring things out. And one of the things that I'm working on, um, cause you mentioned, right. Getting paid bi-weekly and you know how much, you know, to transfer where as like a sort of self-employed creative person, I have not had that kind of stability, right. That, okay. Like every two weeks, this or every month, this. And one of the things I'm working on this year is like, how can I like keeping all income in one account that like essentially I can pay myself every month, like the same amount every month if possible and like hold it there. And so I'm trying to like work on, okay, it would be really nice to have some more stability with that. And so I have to sort of like hack it and create it for myself. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think you'll love it. I I would have a hard time with non-stability. I like the stability yeah. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. So last question, when it comes to money, your personal finances, what's one thing that you would love to learn more about? you're going to laugh. I really don't have a yearning to learn anything more as long I have a financial planner and my husband and I tell them my goal and as long as I can reach my goal then um, they and I give them everything all the information they need then they can take care of that. And that's, I'm good with that. Hell yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, it's like the uh, knowing what enough is right. In any context, like, Oh, like I know enough and I have enough support and this isn't something that I necessarily need to, or want to learn more about. And I feel like that's exactly. a super awesome, honest answer. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like I tell them my goal and this is what I want and tell me what I have to do and I'll do it and done. Yes. Hell yes. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you have made a small and powerful reoccurring per episode pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. Okay. I found you about a year ago. Yeah. Almost a year ago. Um, and so I've been, as soon as I found you, I I became completely obsessed. (laughs) Um, and I just, I just, it was a thing. Like I just had to do it. I just had to support you. There was no question. There was not even thinking about it. The first episode I was like, boom, (laughs) 
I started, <laughs> I just loved it so much. I love you and all your guests. And I, I just became completely obsessed. And I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to support this. I love your conversations. You, uh, your questions are so good. I know you hear that all the time from your guests. They always say it, but you like your questions are amazing. And the, the value I get, I learned so, so much from you and all your guests, like very valuable. Love it. Hmm, thank you. That means so much to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to share where you live and maybe a social media link if people want to say hi? Um, I live in uh, Canada, Ontario, Canada, and I live out in the boondocks on the lake uh, in the bush. I'm a country gal and um, love it. It's the paradise of the north here. And social media, I'm not not big on social media. Really, I, I mean, I do have a Facebook and Instagram, but I'm not active at all. Just really my friends and family, really. So, yeah, love it. Yeah. Yeah. You I are not really. the only one that has said that. But and honestly, it's one of the reasons that I asked too is because even in just that question, you can kind of get a glimpse into like, oh, people use these tools differently, right? Which I think is really nice. Yeah, I'm I'm on the computer all day at work, so I don't like to be on electronics after work. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, well, thank you so much. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is what allows this show to continue. And I can't wait to get to know you better once you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.